Well, I don't have a PowerPoint for this, so I'll just uh, hopefully speak clearly and maybe slowly enough to be intelligible. The announced topic of this segment is the history of the views, and especially in the Church Fathers. I am not going to claim much about the Church Fathers with reference to my views, uh, certainly the preterist views. I don't believe that you can find preterism in the earliest Church Fathers, not at least in terms of an approach to the Book of Revelation. You can find preterism with reference to the Olivet Discourse rather early. The Olivet Discourse, of course, is Matthew 24, which is one of the two major blocks of information when we talk about the tribulation and the rapture, things like that. Uh, Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Eusebius, the church historian, writing in 325, and I pointed this out earlier, I believe, when we were talking about the tribulation, uh, he identified Matthew 24 with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which is, of course, the preterist view. Uh, we don't have any very early fathers taking a preterist view of Revelation, although we don't have an extremely large body of information coming from the early church fathers about Revelation. They, the, ones, uh, the ones that ha- did say something about it did not apparently take a preterist view. And no doubt uh, my companions here on the stage may say that they took a futures view, and that is a possibility, although I don't think they had any idea of how far in the future they were thinking. You know, I think they saw the Roman Empire in their statements. For example, Irenaeus believed that the Roman Empire was the beast, or he said that uh, the mark of the beast stood for the word Latinus, which means the, the Roman. And so I, I believe the early fathers, although they didn't write or I should say we don't have extent, complete commentaries on Revelation from any earlier than about the 4th century, um, when they did make allusions to Revelation, they seemed to feel that the political situation that they were facing was somehow relevant to what they were reading. They were no doubt futurist, and they perhaps thought Jesus would come rather soon. Uh, that is, they thought that the things in Revelation were yet to happen, But they did believe, I think, that the Roman Empire, which was present at the time, would be a main actor in the persecution and so forth found there. You do find in the Church Fathers that they essentially believed that the Church would be here to be persecuted by the Antichrist. I don't have all the quotes with me. I don't don't expect any of these uh, men up here to disagree with that. Uh, There are uh, a couple of fathers who may be said to have believed in a two-stage second coming, and uh, possibly, it could be argued that they believed that the church would be gone when the Antichrist rose. But for the most part, the uh, earliest church fathers who said anything about it did frequently refer to the church being persecuted by the Antichrist, which would suggest that uh, though they may have been futurists, they were apparently not uh, pre-tribulationists. Now, what I'm saying is that we don't really have very early church father testimony to support any of our three views up here necessarily. Uh, The amillennial view, which is another of my views, does have fairly early attestation, but the premillennial view, which these two men hold to, has earlier attestation. Papias, Hippolytus, uh, Justin Martyr, 
Irenaeus, Tertullian, they all were premillennial, and they were early. Uh, the amillennial position was beginning to be visible in the writings of probably Origen in the third century and became more predominant in, in terms of its widespread acceptance in the church as a result of the writings of Augustine, which was maybe early fifth century. So premillennialism was believed early. Now, whether amillennialism existed side by side with it as it does in the age of the church in the present time, we cannot say for sure because I'm not going to claim that it did. What I'm going to say is the testimony of the early church fathers does not play a major role in my decision of what to believe for the simple reason that we only have a relatively few church fathers from several centuries whose writings have survived. Even if we had a dozen, that's still a very small quantity of the leaders of the churches in the first three centuries. Uh, the ones who perhaps were decided to write and whose writings were preserved. There are many church fathers who didn't write anything, of course. I mean, there's many church leaders in the first three centuries whose writings do not exist. So the sampling we have may or may not be characteristic of what most Christians believe. We simply don't know. We do know that some very important church fathers were premillennial. The same church fathers that were premillennial seem to have also believed the church would be here to be persecuted by the Antichrist. Those things, I think, are fairly generally uh, recognized. And amillennialism, which is the view I hold, does not have documentation in the writings of the church fathers uh, prior to, say, Origen, I think. Although Justin Martyr, who is earlier, his second century, uh, Justin Martyr was premillennial, but he did say in his dialogue with Trifo that he knew of many who he said were of the pure and pious faith, meaning Christianity, who think otherwise. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the otherwise refers to. He had been discussing with Trifo his premillennial views. We don't know if uh, Justin was saying that he knows Christians who are not premillennial, or if he simply knew other premillennialists who had different views of the millennium than his own. So we really have ambiguous evidence from the early fathers. And my own position is this, that it would not matter too much to me even if all the church fathers were amillennial or all the church fathers were preterist. I would not hold those views if I didn't find them to be agreeable with Scripture. Likewise, if all the church fathers were dispensational or premillennial or pre-wrath, I would not find that overly significant unless I found it taught in Scripture, for the simple reason that none of us really derive our views from the Church Fathers, perhaps the Roman Catholics more consistently than we do, although they don't consistently either because they're not premillennial, and the Fathers seem to have been. But none of us, for example, unless you are Roman Catholic, none of us believes that we really literally eat the literal body and blood of Jesus every time we take communion, but the Church Fathers believe that. Uh, I doubt if any of us believe in baptismal regeneration, that you're born again through the act of baptism. As an infant, uh, church fathers seem to believe that. There's many things they believe that most of us reserve the right to disagree with them about. And to my mind, eschatology in the Bible is considerably more unclear than issues of, let's say, baptism in the Bible. And therefore, it would not surprise me if those church fathers who I think were mistaken about baptismal regeneration, or I think they were mistaken about eating the flesh and blood of Christ, it wouldn't surprise me if they're mistaken about 
the millennium or other issues that are disputable. The truth is, I cannot claim, and I'm not interested in claiming, that the preterist view I now hold was taught by the Church Fathers. I cannot say it was. Some aspects of preterism, as I say, were reasonably early taught in the sense of the Olivet Discourse being taken that way by Eusebius in 325 A.D. And uh, Arethas uh, and Andreas were commentaries on Revelation. Uh, the dating of those commentaries is disputed. Some place them in uh, the 7th century. Some place them several centuries later. Uh, those men did take a preterist view of at least the early chapters of Revelation, it would appear. They applied the seals to the destruction of Jerusalem in their writings. But the later chapters, I cannot say that they took a preterist approach to. So what I'm saying is it's a mixed bag when you go to the Church Fathers, not only a mixed bag in terms of what they believed eschatologically, but a mixed bag as to what they believed about many Christian doctrines that, frankly, I don't think any of us in this room I don't think any Christian alive you know, takes the Church Fathers as the final authority on, on their theological systems, nor do I. So I guess one thing I would like to suggest is that even though amillennialism does not seem to have been uh, the dominant view of the Church Fathers, there was uh, a gentleman named Alan Patrick Boyd, who I'm sure Dr. Ice is probably familiar with his work. Yeah, I've talked to him on the phone. And talked to him? Okay, so you might be able to clarify something if I misquote him, but okay, he uh, did his master's thesis at Dallas Theological Seminary in 1977, and he said he was a dispensationalist, uh, that he's a premillennialist, and his thesis was called Dispensational Premillennial Analysis of the Eschatology of the Post-Apostolic Fathers Until the Death of Justin Martyr. Um, now, this man had sat under Dr. Charles Ryrie's classes where Ryrie had said that the dispensational system was taught by the earliest fathers. And this student, this master's uh, thesis candidate, um, wrote, uh, well, he did his research on that question, the earliest church fathers. In his thesis, and Dr. Ice can clarify if this is taken out of context, but this is what's written. He says, indeed, this thesis would conclude that the eschatological beliefs of the period studied would be generally inimical to those of the modern system. The modern system, he means dispensational system. He said, perhaps seminal amillennialism and not nascent dispensational premillennialism ought to be seen as the eschatology of the period. Then he said, this validates the claim of Louis Burkhoff, who said, it is not correct to say, as premillennarians do, that the millennium was generally accepted uh, in the first three centuries. The truth of the matter is that adherents to this doctrine were rather limited in number. Now, that is a quotation from Louis Burkhoff in this uh, thesis. Now, I don't know because I have not talked to Alan Patrick Boyd, and I have, not, I have to say I haven't even read his whole thesis. I'm quoting from other sources, I'll admit it. But from what I have read of the Church Fathers, and again, I haven't read all of them. I'm not claiming to be expert on patristic uh, writings. That's not my field. But what I have read of actual statements from many of the church fathers, it does appear that they did often spiritualize Israel. They did not make a clear distinction between Israel and the church. They did believe in a millennium, but they didn't, I think, believe in the Jewish 
law and temple order being restored in the millennium. They tended to spiritualize those things, I believe. And so although there were millennial views held by some of the important church fathers, they were not identical to the views of the dispensationalists or, in, in all likelihood, the pre-wrath. That does not diminish the value of dispensational or pre-wrath view because I've said they didn't teach my view either. The bottom line in terms of my assessment of the history of the view is that the church fathers did not teach any of the views exactly as the men at this, on, on this platform hold them. All of us hold views that have been developed through further biblical study at later times in history. And uh, the preterist view, as I hold it, Dr. Ice informed me, will originate among liberal scholars in Germany, which is no doubt, uh, I mean, I have no reason to dispute that. I don't know those liberal scholars. I didn't get it from them. I got that view from my studies of the scripture and, uh, and other conservative writers who hold the views like mine. But um, the, some form of preterism did exist long before the German scholars uh, did, but it was actually a form that was slightly different than the form I hold. I did not receive my amillennialism or my preterism from any scholars, frankly. I, uh, I reached my amillennial views without knowing there were amillennialists out there. From my own study of the scripture, I reached these conclusions. It didn't even occur to me that anyone had held them before. And then I discovered that, fortunately, for, my, for me, amillennialism was one of the primary views of the church for many centuries, but that's not how I came to believe in it, and that's not why I believe in it now. The process of determining, or should I say discovering truth more correctly, which is our job is to discover biblical truth. Truth was determined at the time the author wrote it. My job is discovery, to see if I can discover the authorial intent of the text. When I go to study with my, just my Bible or with all of my tools, in the late night hours when I study, there are times when I come up with some fabulous truth. I mean, just fabulous. It's beautiful. Until I start checking to see if anybody else has ever found it. And then I judge based on who found it. For I've discovered that I can come up with some great insights, but heretics came up with them too. Therefore, just because somebody came up with something doesn't mean it's true. It has to be checked. Now, the fathers are not a, an authority in the sense that whatever they say goes, but they are a good barometer. Now, it's interesting to me that if I'm 2,000 years removed from the event, that I'm going to take a much more dogmatic opinion about it than a guy that was 100 years from it. I, I just find that fascinating. It seemed to me that if you want to know what happened in 9-11, you probably want to talk to someone in New York. But now if you talk to someone in Tokyo, the only people in Tokyo know is what they saw on television. As you know, you can't trust everything you see on television. So you've got to consider your source and the value of that source relative to what you're doing. Now, for instance, the fathers are fascinating people to me because you've got to, you got to put them in categories because all, not all fathers are the same. And you also got to put them in the years that they were a father because later fathers 
weren't as faithful to the scriptures as the earlier fathers were. And even some of the early fathers were faithful in the early years, and then in later life they changed. So people were undergoing change as they did that. But it, if you're not reading the fathers for yourself, then, then most like everything else, you're left to kind of what people tell you. Now, Justin Martyr, interesting fellow, quote says, the man of apostasy shall venture to do unlawful deeds on earth against us Christians. Now, I don't have time to, do, to give you all the detail. You, you'll have to check my site, but let me just run through a few of these. Like the pastor of Hermes, um, quote from him. And of course, you can take a quote out of context and make it mean anything you want, so basically you need to read in context. But Hippolytus was a fascinating fellow because he was more a collector of truth. He was really not a man who sit down, sat with his Greek New Testament and came up with new truths. He, he, in his early life, he basically went out and tried to gather what he thought was the core truths of Christianity. Of course, a lot of this he refuted in his, in his later life. But just notice what he, what he wrote early life. Now, concerning the tribulation of the persecution, which is the fall upon the church from the adversary, that refers to the 1,203 score days during which the tyrant is to reign and persecute the church. According to this man, whom everyone who knows anything about the Father knows, that in his early life he was a very faithful deliverer of what he believed was the truths of our church. Living somewhere between 160 and 240 after our Lord's birth, he says the church is going to be persecuted by Antichrist. I, I just find that fascinating that anybody would say that if it wasn't taught, believed by somebody. Or Tortullian, he said the same thing. The Didache, fascinating document you can get on the internet, 12 uh, chapters. Um, fascinating document because it was believed to be scripture by some for a while. It was never thrown out as no good. It was used as kind of a thing for teaching people about the early life of a Christian, how to live as a Christian. And it has always have been held in great favor. The, the last chapter of this thing is fascinating because it's eschatology. And the eschatology is right out of Matthew 24. Except one quote which he got out of Zechariah. And it's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. <clears throat> Dr. Larry V. Crutchfield. You know, the more I study and the longer I have time to read, I'm discovering that pre-tribulationalists are really my friends. They really are. Because we believe so much of the same, except when it comes to timing and how you prove it. But, you know, on most of the stuff, being a Dallas grad, I'm right down the line, friend. And the more I'm reading them, you know, you should read the enemy in quotes, because they're not enemies. Because sometimes they can give you great insight. And sometimes they can also help you improve what you're saying by knowing. So Larry Crutchfield is a premillennialist. He is a pre-tribulationalist. He is also an expert on the fathers. Now, this man lives in the fathers. Okay. Now, if you're going to study someone, you ought to study the fathers. And if you don't have the patience to sit down and read these volumes and rims and rims and rims and rims, then the next person you need to turn to is someone who considers himself an authority on their writings, or at least has spent an awful lot of time reading them and trying to collate them and assess them. 
So Dr. Crutchfield, whom I find a very fascinating man, very good man, I have no reason to doubt his integrity and his commitment and his faithfulness to what he believes, and the fact that he is a pre-tribulationalist, premillennialist, I will read what he says because I want to evaluate what he says. Now, his conclusion after studying the fathers, particularly the earliest ones, he writes this, with few exceptions, the premillennial fathers of the early church believed that they were living in the last times. Thus, they looked daily for the Lord's return. Even most of those who looked for Antichrist's appearance prior to the second advent saw that event as occurring suddenly being followed by the rescue and rapture of the saints. This belief in the imminent return of Jesus Christ within the context of ongoing persecution has prompted us to broadly label the views of the earliest fathers imminent intra-tribulationism. Now, boy, I just find that fascinating because imminent intra-tribulationism is pre-rad. It's the same thing. It's exactly what we believe. We use the word pre-rad because it got took the label, but you can call it whatever you want. I just believe that Christ is going to return for the church after the time of tribulation called great tribulation starts. He will come and he will deliver his people out of the midst of it, which is exactly what the early fathers believed. Here's a man who says it. I believe he has an axe to grind. I think he's a man of integrity. He's trying to wrestle with the data. And even though it would have been much more favorable to him to have been able to say that the earliest father were strict pre-tribulationalists, he couldn't say that because he knew that that was not true. They believed in imminency, but only imminency in the context of persecution, an intense one which they believed they were in. And this label is probably the best way to explain these earliest fathers in terms of what they believe relative to this issue of when Christ comes in connection with persecution of the church. This is a, this is, this, what do you do with this? Now, if he was, if he was pre-wrath and he wrote that, I probably you could, you could raise an eyebrow. The fact that he's pre-tribulationalist, to me, gives it even more weight because he's being honest. Now, just because the early fathers believed this, doesn't, that don't make it true either. It has to be exegetically deduced from the text. But if I deduce my position from the text with exegesis, and then I can confirm that in the fathers the earliest fathers, who were the most consistent with the Pauline, Petrine, Johannine corpse of Scripture, then it seems to me that I ought to at least give it a, a shot. Now, I have followed this because I wanted to see if there was going to be any kind of uh, restatement or withdrawal of it or anything like that. It has not been. The view of the earliest fathers before their hermeneutic changed. Did you know that they changed their hermeneutic? And when they changed their hermeneutic, they walked away from this and became amillennialists. Why? They changed their hermeneutic. But before they changed their hermeneutic, when they believed in the normal, natural, customary sense of the text, 
they were premillennial, believing that Christ was going to dwell on the earth a thousand years after he returned. And they believed that he was going to return in the midst of great persecution of God's people, delivering them out from its myth. You didn't know that. They won't tell you that. That's what I want to know. Because I want to believe the fathers. I had a very interesting debate with a friend of mine. G. Campbell Morgan was asked a question one day, five minutes. G. Campbell Morgan was asked a question one day. He said, Dr. Morgan, do you find any warrant for the distinction between the second coming of our Lord for his own, the rapture, and the coming of the Lord with his own? within a time period of three and a half or seven years between those two events? Dr. Morgan responded emphatically not. I know that view very well, for in early years of my ministry, I taught it and incorporated it into my books entitled God's Method with Man. But further study so convinced me of the error of this teaching that I actually went to the expense, expense of buying the plates of the book from my publisher and destroying them. The idea of a separate and secret coming of Christ to remove the church prior to his coming in power and glory is a vagary of prophetic interpretation without any biblical basis whatsoever. So now, wait, now, wait a minute now. Wait, G. Campbell Morgan, he's a, he's a hero. So, well, he's not a hero when it comes to his eschatology because he didn't believe in pre-tribulationalism or mid-tribulationalism. So what am I supposed to do with that father? He's not the earliest church father, but he's one of the early fathers when it comes to trying to understand your position on the rapture. What, what I'm trying to show you by comparing these people is that you, you can have people on both sides, people who believe, don't believe, but ultimately it's always going to come to... The scripture. What does, what can you find intimated in the scriptures, the word of God? And the earliest fathers believed just like we do today. And the church would have continued to believe it had not Augustine and some boys started fiddling with the middle of the Oreo cookie, which is hermeneutics. Start spiritualizing start walking away from the literal plain sense and begin to tell us that what we read is not what it means and you won't know what it means until some guy gets up and tell you that's what it means. Up until then, you would have believed exactly what you read according to the normal, natural, customary sense. You wouldn't have believed that Jesus was a door a wooden literal door, you would have read that and said Jesus is the door, you would have known that that was a figure of speech indicating that Jesus is the entrance into and out of. You would never walk away and say, I wonder, is he a pine door, a wooden door, is he an oak door? I wonder, is he a cedar door? Because you naturally know how to discern when something is a figure of speech and when it is not. And when it's giving you something literal and when it's not giving you something literal based on the context of what you're reading. And the fathers understood that. And if it remained consistent, we wouldn't be having this little discussion today. We're here today because the early fathers changed the hermeneutic. When they changed the hermeneutic, they opened the door. And that's why we got all these views. Because someone decided that the plain literal sense wasn't good enough. That's why. I don't have a degree in patristics, which is the study of early church history, but I do have a master's degree in church history. 
and I am completing a PhD on church history in eschatology. And um, if someone would like to ask me during the question and answer period about Greg Boyd, I'd be happy to talk about him and his dissertation thesis. Alan Patrick Boyd, yeah, Greg Boyd's another guy, I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm going to look at the history of Bible prophecy uh, of what the church has believed. And, of course, we all, as has been stated, believe it's what the Bible says that's authoritative. But when you start reading books or talking about eschatology, uh, you know that history comes in. People start raising historical issues. So the authority is Scripture, but it's not wrong to interact and talk about what people you know, have believed down through history and try to uh, figure out why it is, what influences influence them and, and what uh, th- bad influences or, or lack of good influences uh, there were. So the early Christians were called Kiliasts, and liberal historian Adolf Harnack says was inseparably associated with the gospel itself in the first couple of centuries. It was that strong, he, he argues. By the way, people talk about reading the church fathers. There are 500 volumes that have never been translated into English that are only in Greek and Latin. So if you just have those three sets and you think you got the church fathers, you don't. Uh, So uh, it takes one who knows uh, English, Greek, and Latin to be able to truly read the church fathers. Harnack further declared, faith is in the nearness of Christ's second advent and the establishment of his reign of glory on the earth was undoubtedly a strong point in the primitive Christian church. Philip Schaff, who was a post-millennialist who uh, lived about 125 years ago, called the dean of American church history, said the note, uh, he was also a preterist, The noted church historian wrote of the uh, period prior to the First Council of Nicaea called the Anti-Nicene Period. The most striking point in the eschatology of the Anti-Nicene Age is the prominent Kiliasm, in other words, premillennialism, or millennialism, that is the belief in a visible return of Christ and glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. And here we have Justin Martyr where he says, but I and whosoever... Uh, Christians are orthodox in all things. And so he equates this with orthodoxy. Uh, Do know that there will be a resurrection of the flesh and a thousand years in the city of Jerusalem, built, adorned, and enlarged according as Ezekiel, Isaiah, and other prophets have promised. And we see uh, Tertullian, who gave us the word Trinity and other things, says, but we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, as much as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built uh, city of Jerusalem. And we have the decline of Kiliasm, which really begins in the late 300s and, and early 400s, and you still, by, even in the 400s, have very strong premillennial presence in the church. And uh, the removal of the persecution of Christians by Emperor Constantine, accompanied by a union of church and state and a general rejection of the doctrine of the coming king. In other words, that was a con- contribution of it. Premillennialism was very strong when the church was being persecuted, and it historically has been, by the way. The rise of the Alexandrian school of 
interpretation which favored the allegorizing method rather than the literal. This approach included a strong rejection of Kiliasm by Origen, who was the theologian of this school. The large influence of Jerome, who made the statement in his commentary on Daniel, uh, away with a thousand years. By the way, uh, someone talked about Andreas and all these other guys that do commentaries. The way they did commentaries back then was to copy what others had written and add their comments. That's why it's hard to know if some of these commentaries represent what they believe or other people. Jerome's a good example in his commentary on Daniel. You know, he's simply continuing. That's how they did it back then. And Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, who became the first substantial Catholic theologian, so Jerome's a scholar, translated the Bible into Latin and wrote commentaries. And Augustine's the theologian who became the first substantial Catholic theologian to espouse amillennialism. See, before that, it was anti-millennialism. And he rejected Kiliasm on superficial grounds. Freely spiritualized scripture taught that Satan is bound in the present age and theorized that Christ might return in the year 650 A.D. By the way, he took the thousand years to be literal. While this date was later adjusted to 1000 A.D. and beyond before it was finally abandoned, Augustinian amillennialism dominated the Roman church in his day and for centuries to come. And so I think you could summarize it this way. You have ancient premillennialism, Achilleism, was dominant in the church so about 350. You begin to have anti-millennialism rise up around 200, 180, 200, around in there. And it comes on the scene, anti-millennialism has a positive statement that we call amillennialism when Augustine wrote The City of God and formulated it. And you then have post-millennialism, which developed later, but piggybacks at many points with amillennialism. It is an anti-millennialism. And, you know, I've discovered in people's personal lives, this is often how they shift theology by first becoming anti-premillennial. And they start looking around uh, for other things, and they go gravitate to another position. And that's what's happened historically. You have, in, you know, earliest postmillennialism with some of the Puritans, very few, but some, and then 1700 with um, Whitby, and uh, really postmillennialism doesn't come on the scene until the 1700s. People like Jonathan Edwards in the United States. Then you have premillennial revival uh, in, with the Puritans in the 1600s. Most, almost all Puritans who immigrated to the United States in the 1600s were premillennial. Uh, uh, Richard Cotton, uh, Richard Mather says that in a statement. Uh, and you have modern premillennialism, which is futurist premillennialism, uh, or dispensationalism, arise around the 1820s. As Dr. Ryrie said, something everybody else has said, the fact that the church taught something in the first century doesn't make it true, and likewise that the church did not teach something until the 20th century is not necessarily false. Uh, the post-apostolic church, you have expressions of eminency abound in the apostolic fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the Didache, the epistle of uh, Barnabas, the shepherd of Hermas, all speak of eminency. Furthermore, the shepherd of Hermas speaks of the pre-tribulational concept of escaping the tribulation. You have uh, here... This is a statement. You have escaped from great tribulation on account of your faith, and because you did not doubt in the presence of such a beast, go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord his mighty deed and say to them, 
that this beast is a type of the great tribulation that is coming. If then ye prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it is possible for you to escape it. If your heart be pure and spotless and ye spend the rest of the, lot, uh, the days of your life in serving the Lord blamelessly. Now, this is a disputed statement because he makes other statements that seem to contradict this. But nevertheless, I've known a lot of people who have held internal contradictions in their eschatology over the years. Then uh, Pseudo-Ephraim and I wrote an article with Tim Demme that was published in Bibliothea Sacred Dallas Seminary's journal uh, where this is one of the things from the over 500 volumes of unpublished in English uh, sermons called Pseudo-Ephraim Sermon who uh, could have been anywhere around 387 to at the latest the 500s because it's clearly pre-Islamic. And they and, and he has a 10 paragraph by the way this is on our website the whole sermon 1427 words in Latin I think but we have it translated into English. And uh, this is paragraph 2 he talks about this rapture statement and then in paragraphs 9 and 10 he talks about uh, the second coming. Why, therefore, do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ so that he may draw us from the confusion? In some of the middle paragraphs, he describes the confusion as the tribulation. There's no doubt about that, which overwhelms the world. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, and then he gets back and says, For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Now, he does believe in a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. So people say, isn't that mid-trib? No, because for him, the tribulation was three-and-a-half years. If it was a mid-trib, it would be one and three-quarters. In fact, Darby, uh, the, the modern popularizer of the rapture, held to a three-and-a-half-year tribulation himself until 1844. Uh, and... Uh, then you have uh, Francis Goomerlock, who got his Ph.D. here at St. Louis University in patristics. I'm, I'm sorry, in classics. And he go, has gone through and read a lot of the early church fathers and middle, medieval stuff. And I'm pretty sure that Francis is a uh, preterist postmillennialist. And on page 81 of this book, he talks about a guy named Brother Dalcino, and he later wrote an article about this that was presented at Evangelical Theological Society and published in Bibliothea Sacra about a guy named Brother Dalcino who in 1304 taught a preacher of rapture. And I don't want to read all of this for you. This is on our website as well. And he is certainly not pushing for dispensationalism or pre-tribulationalism, but he believes that it is a form of pre-tribulationalism. He says, and on this basis, I submit my case for expanding the historical boundaries of pre-tribulationalism. And uh, he also has told Mark Hitchcock, a friend of ours, that he has his three file drawers full of rapture material from the Middle Ages that he hasn't trans worked with yet. And he doesn't want to give us that information because he wants to publish the book, which is his right. He found it. And uh, this is what I'm saying. A lot of work hasn't done this. Dispensationalism, you know, which produced pre-tribulationalism, was a Bible movement in the 1800s. 
and uh, their focus has been on studying and teaching the Bible, not so much on church history. Brethren, researcher Frank Moretta believes that Thomas Collier in 1674 makes reference to a pre-tribulational rapture, but rejects the view, thus showing his awareness that such a view was being taught. Moretta uh, writes of Collier, because he raised the question of the saints being raised at Christ's first appearing in the clouds of heaven instead of later on at the entrance of the thousand years, it is apparent that Collier certainly considered the idea of a preacher of rapture. Uh, John Askell, and I found there's only a few copies at the Boodleian Library at Oxford uh, and found a copy of his book and read all 92 pages of it. It wouldn't let me take it out of there or photocopy it. He, and this is the title of his book, An Argument Proving That According to the Co- Covenant of Eternal Life Revealed in the Scriptures, Man May Be Translated From Hence Into That Eternal Life Without Passing Through Death, Although the Human Nature of Christ Himself uh, Could Not Be Thus Translated Till It Had Passed Through Death. That's the title of the book. And his book has been examined and pronounced blasphemous and had been burnt by the order of the house without his having been heard in its defense. And Askell was moved from the Irish Parliament in 1703 and from the English Parliament in 1707 and spent 30 years in prison. Uh, he lived to be 100 <laughs> uh, because of just simply for write, uh, publishing this book about the possibility of the rapture. Morgan Edwards uh, was a, a guy who went to Bristol Baptist College in England. And in 1744, which was his last year, he published, he wrote... Uh, a paper on eschatology that is a 56-page book that I got out of the Library of Congress. It was published in 1788, but he says that he, that he wrote it in 1744 while he was still in Bristol Baptist College. And Morgan Edwards was the founder of an Ivy League school called uh, Brown University, and he uh, was the, is the father of Baptist history in the United States. He was a hyper-Calvinist ordained to the ministry by John Gill and pastor of the First Baptist Church in Philadelphia. And he talks about how he's going to interpret the Bible literally and not just repeat the eschatology of everyone else. And he talks about there will be a a three-and-a-half-year before the millennium. He also believes that tribulation was three-and-a-half years and about how we're going to be raptured and all this kind of stuff and he talks about going back to the father's house by the way this is on our website as well the entire book we've modernized it for spelling and so disappear during the foresaid period uh the design of the retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen saints so he believes even the bema is going to take place you know during this time and he goes on and talks another event previous to the millennium will be the appearing of the son of man in the clouds coming to raise rise the dead saints and change the living and to catch them up to himself and then withdraw with them and observe before. This event will come to pass uh, when Antichrist will be arrived at Jerusalem in his conquest of the world about three and a half years before his killing the witnesses and assumption of Godhead. The last event and the event will usher in the millennium will uh, be the coming of Christ from paradise on earth with all the saints he had taken up thither about three and a half years before. And he goes on and talks about all of this kind of stuff. Uh, recently, some British uh, friends of mine have found that f- some of the French Janists, Janists were basically Frenchmen in the 1700s who were Protestant, they were Calvinist uh, Catholics, but because of the state of Christianity in France, did not want to become Protestants because of the St. Baldrick 
Bartholomew's Day massacre that killed 70,000 uh, Protestants back in the 1600s. And one of them named George, uh, Bernard Lambert and Jean Ager uh, taught some form of a two-stage uh, second coming. And uh, British scholar Crawford Gribben said, What is certain, therefore, is that the idea of a two-stage coming was circulating sometime before Darby heard Mark MacDonald's ecstatic uh, utterance in autumn of uh, 1830. And I'm working on my dissertation called The Origins of the Preacher of Rapture in Jay and Darby. And if there's anything that's clear, it's clear that uh, Mark MacDonald didn't even teach a preacher of rapture. Uh, it's very clear that the Irvinites did not teach a believe in a pre-trib rapture. They were historicists, and their statements that are taken to be pre-trib are references to the second coming, and that Darby most certainly developed this view on his own as he shifted from historicism to futurism. And he explains in his own writings how by uh, the December 1827 and January 1828, which was when he had a writing accident, it's called his convalescence period, that that's when he first thought about the rapture. But uh, it wasn't until about four, uh, 10 to 15 years later he became confident in that view. And so I think that's, he, he developed this just as others in the past had seen a preacher of rapture. Okay, I'm sure my time's up, right? It wasn't the word of God. It was really the context of the era in which these men lived. Early, from the earliest time, there began to be a march towards, even as our Lord, of course, was on earth fighting with the Pharisees, Sadducees, all these people, and then the Apostle Paul fighting with the Judaizers. And, and as that early history began, there began to be an intense hatred of Jews, a, a rebellion uh, on the part of the church against the Jews and because they were, they were accusing the church, you know, of eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood and, and all of the, the negative, nasty things that were being said about the Christians. And there began to be this, this tremendous division between Christians in terms of their attitude towards Jews and their attitude about abandoning all of the promises and all of the things that the Jews that the Old Testament seemed to indicate were for the Jews as they began to rob the Jews of that and began to transform that into what would become the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the new people of God, the church. They began to, only way they could really do that was to begin to spiritualize those scriptures and begin to say that they had a new or deeper meaning or a different meaning than what was on the plain surface of the text. And so in order to really support a lot of that foolish nonsense that they were teaching, since the Old Testament plain literal sense couldn't do it, they had to find a meaning that was not very apparent in the text. And the, the earliest seeds came out of a hatred and, and an attempt to rob the Jews, simply because they perhaps wouldn't get along as well as they may have wanted, to rob them of their historicity in terms of what God was going to do for them in the future. And amillennialism has as its fundamental basis the absolute robbing Israel of any significance whatsoever in the future plan of God. They have none, period. I'd like to speak to that, too. Um, I can't answer for people like Augustine and what made him change his hermeneutic. I know what made me change mine. I was a dispensationalist for the first eight years of my ministry. 
And my view has changed without ever reading an amillennialist. Uh, Dr. Cooper said when he spoke that you would never find these views on your own. You have to be told by somebody. That was not my experience, uh, and I was certainly never anti-Israel. I practically worshipped Israel in the years I was a dispensationalist. I wore a Star of David. I even wanted to marry a, a Jewish woman so that my children would be Jewish. Uh, I never had any anti-Israel uh, sentiments of any kind. I still don't. My hermeneutic changed from my study of the New Testament and especially paying special attention to how the apostles quoted and applied Old Testament scriptures and my finding that they, more frequently than not, <clears throat> did not take a literal approach. I believe about a third of the time, statistically, they took a literal approach to certain scriptures in the Old Testament, and they took a, a, not an allegorical approach, as some people like to use that term, but they took a spiritualized approach and sometimes a typological approach to quite a lot of the scriptures. And the ones they took a spiritual approach to, uh, I used to, as a dispensationalist, when I noticed that they did that, I just figured they were being arbitrary. I figured it was just by inspiration God showed them something that you know didn't make sense in the original writings of the Old Testament, but by inspiration the Holy Spirit had just kind of given them this kind of uh, idea out of left field that this scripture meant this way, but that it's true because the Holy Spirit showed them. Later I began to see a pattern of their thinking so that I realized that when they spiritualized a given passage, it wasn't just an isolated case of them getting some kind of revelation about that one passage. They were actually following a hermeneutic, which... I felt the obligation to adopt myself, and that's how I became an amillennialist. And when I did, like I say, I'd never heard an amillennial preacher or teacher. I didn't even know there was such another view out there. And when I became an amillennialist, I was the only non-dispensationalist I personally knew. And I thought I might be the only non-dispensationalist in the world because I didn't know dispensationalism was called dispensationalism. I thought that was just what the Bible taught until I became an amillennialist. And I, I had decided I wouldn't teach Bible prophecy anymore because I thought I'd be a heretic. And I was very relieved some years later to discover that uh, you know, there were others before me, many others, that had reached these conclusions. Like I say, I can't say how, how Augustine reached his conclusions. I've never read Augustine. Um, but I know how I reached mine, and it certainly was not through the method that was just described. Well, Augustine says that he was a premillennialist and that he shifted because... You know, he viewed it as carnal band quitting. So he tells us to some extent at least, you know, why he shifted. Secondly, um, there's a difference in one's hermeneutic, how you approach literature, and, and the ways that uh, the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. And uh, Arnold Frichtenbaum uh, has shown that the Jews at the time of Christ quoted the Old Testament in four basic ways, and he's gone through and classified all the quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament in one of these four ways. And the first is literal plus literal fulfillment. You know, mm -hmm. he'll be born in Bethlehem. That's very clear. Right. The second is called literal plus typical, where they uh, give a typological handling of the Old Testament passage. They out don't. Of Egypt, I call my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son, where that was t in the context of the Old Testament passage talking about Israel, and it's applied typologically to him. Uh, and in other words, th these four ways are observed in extra biblical Jewish writings uh, of the day, and those same four ways are observed in the New Testament. 
And then you have the third way, and they don't change the meaning of the Old Testament passage or use the New Testament to reinterpret the Old. But he, the third way is called the literal plus application, and there's a lot of these. You know, Rachel weeping for her children uh, in the context of Jeremiah was uh, the Jewish captives who were going into captivity, uh, and they passed by a city where Rachel was buried, and Jewish women came out and were weeping for those going into captivity. And that was the literal fulfillment. And that same application where you had another instance of a uh, Jewish women at the slaughter of the innocent in the time of Christ is applied to them and uh, not said to be fulfilled. And I believe Acts 2 is the same thing where you have uh, an introductory form, introductory formula in, in the New Testament is where they'll say, and it, just as it was written or fulfilled saying. See, that's an introductory formula. The introductory formula in Acts 2 is this is that which was spoken of by the prophet. The word fulfilled is not used, and he's making an analogy between what? The question that was asked, are these men drunk? And he's saying, no, they are not drunk. They are being influenced by the same influence that you have in Joel 2, which is the Holy Spirit, because none of those events in Joel 2 were being fulfilled in Acts 2. Uh, and so he says, this is that. And I think by ellipsis, the intention, if you translate it to English, would be this is like or similar to that. And so this is an application. I also think in Acts 15, you have the same thing going on there. It's an application of the passage. And then you have the fourth kind, which is called summarization. For example, that Christ would be born a Nazarene, the New as the scriptures, plural says. And a key to that is always it's a scripture, it's plural scripture. Mm -hmm. Nowhere does the Bible say that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. And so, but if you go through the Old Testament, there are a bunch of scripture passages that talk about Nazarene this, Nazarene that, and Jesus was from Nazareth and all these kinds of things. And so he's giving a summarization there, you know, those kinds of things. And all four, uh, that's the way the Jews quoted the scriptures in the first century, and you see the same thing happening. I think it's uh, dangerous, as a matter of fact, to develop your hermeneutic from the way the inspired apostles quoted scripture. 